Well, friends, please join me now in taking our request to God as we will look to his word. We need his help if this time is going to be of use to us and we want it to be. God is faithful. And so let's pray to him. Our father in heaven, we come to you and we confess what we have just sung, that our greatest need is the Lord Jesus Christ and that if we have him, we have all that we need. We come and confess as well about ourselves that we are sinners and that we are desperate for you. We have come here this morning in need that you would minister to us. So we pray, God, that you by your spirit would now come, that you would use this time as we look to your word. We pray that you would continue to sustain our faith through the proclamation of the gospel. And we pray that you would even impart faith to those who might not yet trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would come and give us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear. Give us hearts that love your word and that love you and continue to work in our hearts that we might love you more and love one another more. And so we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So question for us to consider. What is it that motivates us in the Christian life? Or let me phrase it another way. What is it that stirs us up? What is it that drives us to obedience in the Christian life? It's a serious question. It's worth our contemplation. Here are just a few thoughts on what does motivate us biblically in the Christian life and motivate us and drive us on towards obedience. First, we'd say our identity, our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. It motivates us and it drives us on towards greater obedience. It drives us on in the Christian life. Another thing is the love of God. The love of God in Christ Jesus motivates and drives us in the Christian life. Here's another one. I don't know if you've thought about it quite like this before, but safety and security in the Lord Jesus Christ actually serves to drive us forward in the Christian life. Safety and security in the Lord Jesus Christ is a motivator for the Christian life, for our love and our obedience. Love, our love toward God, joy in what the Lord has done and in who he is and gratitude toward God for what he has done. Drive us and motivate us in the Christian life. So obedience to God's word, obedience to God's commands is a good and joyful thing. It's something that we get to pursue from a place of rest in Christ Jesus and from a place of peace with God. Far from us constantly chasing after peace with God through our obedience, no, we have peace with God. And now we get to obey. It's a wonderful thing. And that is a fundamentally different equation. So often obedience is discussed or obedience is even preached in a way that's threatening, in a way that's exacting. In that kind of situation, the assumption often is that, well, baseline, people don't want to obey God. And so they need to be threatened in order to get them to obey. There's a baseline assumption sometimes that, well, 
moral laxity is just kind of the norm. And so we've got to put some skin in the game for people in order to motivate them to holiness. That's a fundamentally wrong perspective if we're talking about the redeemed. If we're talking about the church, the motivator is quite different. What drives us is quite different. It's the Holy Spirit of God through those other things that we've already considered. Far from obedience, at least in our context, we pray by God's grace, far from obedience coming across as this thing that we just better do or else. Obedience to God's commands can come across, should come across as something that is wonderful and good and life-giving and joy-filled. It is something that we get to do. So it's my hope that as we think about obedience and the Christian life from God's word here at CBC, that obedience to God's commands and certainly a, a command like love one another, my hope is that that would never sound like a trip to the DMV, right? Something that's just terrible. Oh my gosh, let me bear up underneath this and just kind of begrudgingly do it. No, this is something different altogether. The posture of the Apostle John throughout the letter of 1 John has been something that we've observed. He is very pastoral in his tone. He speaks with words of comfort and assurance and safety and security. And in that, as he is assuring the redeemed, he is exhorting the redeemed. He is encouraging them to continue on in trusting Christ and trusting the message about Jesus that they heard from the beginning. He is encouraging them to practice righteousness. He is encouraging them to love one another. He is, as it were, pulling these dear saints along. He's stirring them up. His posture is not one of anger, where he's cracking the whip from behind, like you better get it in gear. It's no, brothers, sisters, we are from God. Let's do this. Let's keep trusting. Let's keep practicing righteousness. Let's keep loving one another. Beloved, consider the love of God for you in Christ, and then let's go love each other. That's the apostle's message. We're going to get to think more about that today from the letter of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to 1 John chapter 4. We will be spending our time today in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Now that you've had just a moment to flip there, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat it. We will get this verses uh, from the sermon text from the passage up on the screen for you, and you can follow along there. Before we go any further, I will read God's word for us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have three points for our consideration today. Only three. 
We'll start with number one. I'll give them to you one at a time. Point number one, we are of God, and so we love one another. Number one, we are of God, and so we love one another. Put your eyes on verse seven. John addresses his hearers as beloved, as he has throughout this letter. He has affection for these saints, for these dear people. And then he's going to give them an exhortation. Let us, let's love one another. Let's love one another because or since love is from God. Whoever loves his brother or sister, he says, has been born of God and knows God. So we've considered these things throughout the letter already, but it's never bad for us to think some more about them together. Love for the brothers, love for one another in the church is evidence that a person has been born again by God's spirit. So we can look around, assess one another, live life together, and we see in this body an imperfect but real love for one another. That is evidence of the work of the Spirit of God, and we and you should be encouraged. Say, praise God that that exists, because we didn't produce it. God's Spirit produces this in a person. Genuine love, genuine affection for his or her brother or sister. Love for the brothers is evidence that a person knows God. This is not the absolute way. This is not like the bedrock of of your assurance, right? But it is an encouragement to us as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. As we see love for the brothers in ourselves and in other people, we can say, ah, yes, this exists because we know God. Verse eight, though, John's going to give us the flip side. It's just the flip side of the coin, right? The opposite side of his reasoning. Anyone who does not love, you can put your eyes there does not know God because God is love. So God is love. Therefore, those who are of him will love one another. And so if there's no love for one another, it's evident that God is not there. The redeemed, in other words, are of God. And so they love because God is love. And those who don't love the brothers and sisters, think of the context of this letter, right? Abandonment, apostasy. There are people who have left these people that John is writing to that have gone out from the church. Think of that context. Those who don't love the brothers and the sisters demonstrate that they are not of God and that they do not know God. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. So John's exhortation. Let's love one another. One way that I would maybe frame it, paraphrase of what he is saying, is like, beloved, look, we're the redeemed. Let's do what the redeemed do and let's love one another. We're the redeemed, man. Let's do what the redeemed do and love each other. That's the encouragement. We love because love is from God and we are his. So big kind of thought meditation here. This this is critical in terms of how we just think about the Christian life, in terms of how we live it day to day. Our duty, and by duty I mean what we're to do, how we're to live, our duty is derived from our identity. 
in the Christian life. Our duty is derived from our identity in Christ, our identity as the redeemed. So the fundamental question, I'm going to try to unpack this for a minute. The fundamental question, like most baseline question for the Christian, for us as a body, is what? Who are we? Not what must we do. That's secondary. First question, who are we? We're gods. We're the redeemed. And now we can talk about what we do. Our duty, what we do, is derived from our identity, who we are, not the other way around. John's letter and the entire scripture makes that quite clear, that that's the pattern, that one flows out of the other. We are gods and therefore we love one another. We don't love one another in order to become gods. This is crystal clear in verse 10. So you can go, we're going to get there in a minute. You can go ahead and take a little sneak peek down at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, right? So God is the one who has made this a reality. We didn't do it. We didn't initiate. We didn't accomplish it, right? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Our identity in the son precedes our duty. That's first. So what this means for us, brothers and sisters, is some really awesome stuff. This means that you're not in an endless cycle of chasing after your status as God's child. We are not on the hamster wheel all the time chasing after our status as children of God. The Christian life is status forward. We are children of God and therefore we live this way. We are children of God now. Let's have the conversation about how we live in the household of God. That's the pattern. We are God's children. And now with that settled, we can instruct. We can exhort. We can correct. We can implore. We can plead in an environment where we all know who we are. So with that understanding that identity precedes duty and that our identity in Christ is secure, not because of us, because of him, because of what he has accomplished, serious instruction can be given in a way that is still safe, in a way that is compassionate, in a way that need not unsettle unnecessarily. Right? This is what John is doing throughout this entire letter. This is the apostolic pattern, by the way. Like as you read the letters of the New Testament, they always begin with identity. The apostles do. They always begin with status. They always begin with, here's what God has done. Here's what he's done in you. Here's who you are. And then we go about talking about life and how we live it. So just an illustration practically for us to kind of give us some handles. Think about the most loving home environment that you can conceive of. Parents and children. The most loving home that you can imagine where mom and dad love the kids. Mom and dad love the children so they are instructing their children in right and wrong and good and bad. But that instruction is always done in a way where the children know that they know that they know that mom and dad love me. I'm good. This is safe. This is secure. 
My status is not in question whatsoever. And so then the instruction, it's, it's different. The discipline even and the correction, it's different because it's done in that environment. That's, that is like an imperfect, very kind of small illustration of what we're talking about. In the household of God, there is perfect safety. There is perfect security, perfect rest. The identity that we have is secure. Our status, it's not changing. God loves us and he teaches us through his word and he corrects us and it's safe. That's wonderful news. It's different than what I grew up with. I don't know about you. Far from obeying to earn God's favor, this is a different thing altogether. Brings us now to our second point that we'll consider together today. Number two, God's love for us drives our love for one another. Number two, God's love for us drives our love for one another. This point will be the longest one. I always like to do that for you, lest you be alarmed. Let's put our eyes on verse nine. In this, The love of God was made manifest, that is revealed, made visible, made apparent among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Go ahead and put your eyes on verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So taking those two verses together, this is not requiring a lot of me just going to talk with you for a moment about the wonderful truth contained in those verses. God's love was made obvious and clear in the greatest way imaginable in that he sent Jesus into the world so that we might live through Christ. That's what the text says. And so it's appropriate to say that the greatest expression of the love of God ever is the son of God coming in the flesh to accomplish redemption. The fact that God the Son took on flesh to live a perfect life and die an atoning death under the law in the place of sinners and then conquer the grave in our place is the greatest demonstration of God's love that there is. I mean, it's a baseline. In this, the love of God was made apparent. You want to know if God loves you? Look to no other reality than that. That God the Son came. He lived. He died. He rose again to accomplish your redemption and mine. God loves us. Verse 10, it's not that we have loved God, but that it's he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, this means that love at its core, love at its heart is not that we have loved God. It's not our love for God. It's that God loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. So this means that real love and love in its most pure form is never grounded in us. Love is always grounded in God. God is the source. God is the fountainhead. What's more, he doesn't love us because we're worthy of it. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. He loves us Because he loves us. That's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's wonderful. It's not because you were great. It's not because you were the largest. In fact, you were the smallest. It's because the Lord loves you. 
He loves you because he loves you. And oh, by the way, he's keeping his covenant that he made. Has everything to do with him. It's nothing to do with us and our loveliness. God loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he is love. He loves unworthy people like you and me. So this is probably clear to you, but we'll just make it absolutely plain. We do not deserve the love of God. We did not initiate God's love toward us in any way. This love of God to us does not depend on us. It is not driven by us and it's not sustained in any way by us. This love depends on God. He drives it. He sustains it. And because he is the ground of it, that's why it's good news for us today that God loves us. And we can know that we know that we know that that love is not going anywhere. So we don't often turn to other passages of Scripture. I will often reference other passages in explaining one. But today we're going to turn to Romans chapter 5 because this passage sort of begs us to do that. This whole, you know, it's not that we loved God, but God loved us, right? So we're going to turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. We are going to get these verses up here on the screen for us as well. These verses of the Apostle Paul will help us to consider this magnificent love of God that drives our love for one another. So that's what we're doing right now. We're kind of steeping ourselves for a minute in the love of God for us, and then we're going to get to the piece about how that drives our love for one another. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses here for us. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could say amen and go home right now. Praise the Lord that that's true. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, Paul's going to say we rejoice when we go through hard stuff. Why? Here we go. We rejoice more than that in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, we have peace with God. We've been called into this wonderful grace. We rejoice in this amazing hope. He's going to ground all of that in verse 6. Why is this so awesome and secure? Put your eyes there. For because while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is certain, friends, right? This doesn't depend on you. Because when it was the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly, not for the people that God would have been happy to save in the first place. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right. This is exactly what John's saying. It's not that we loved God. We were weak. We were weak and we were in our sin, we were ungodly, we were God's enemies, and God loved us most magnificently in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came to die for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's no condemnation, there's no wrath coming our way. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved 
by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So when we were weak and when we were sinners and when we were ungodly and we were enemies, Christ came. He died for us. How much more so now that we've been justified and reconciled to God, can we have confidence before God? That's Paul's argument. We are in a position now of absolute security, absolute safety and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing to fear, nothing to fear. And this is precisely how we have been loved by God. We were dead and now we're alive. We were weak. We've been made strong in the Lord Jesus. We were enemies of God. We're now friends of God. He was our judge. He's now our father. We were wicked. We have now been counted righteous and are being made more righteous. We will be perfect one day. This is the love of God for us. And so, back to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11. This is what John has in mind. In this is love. Not that we did anything, but that God loved us and sent Christ for us. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, if he in this way loved us, if he to this extent loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the conclusion. If God loved us to the extent that he sent Jesus to be the satisfaction for our sins and give us life, and if God loved us in this way, unmerited love, undeserved favor, then we certainly should love one another in the church. We should love one another as the community of the redeemed. And so the kind of love, this is just a brief aside. I trust that this won't surprise many in the room. The kind of love that John is talking about that we should have for one another is not the kind of love that the world would give. It's different than that. It's love that does not just love for what it gets in return. It's love that is not conditioned upon the loveliness of the beloved. It's costly, it's gentle, it's kind and patient and compassionate. So in other words, the kind of love that John is pointing us to is supernatural. It can only be produced by the Spirit of God amongst the redeemed. So some sort of significant meditations and thoughts for us here within point two. The first one. The love of God for us in Christ Jesus has literally changed everything for us. The love of God for us in Christ Jesus has literally changed everything for us. We considered this already somewhat. We went from being an outsider to being adopted into the family. That's a fundamental shift and change. We went from being an enemy of God to a child of God. We went from being dead to being alive, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Everything has changed for us because of the love of Christ for us. Second thought, second meditation. Our love for one another is now possible and is only possible because of God's love for us. Our love for one another is now possible and is only possible 
because of God's love for us. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that as God set his love upon us and then sent the son to come and accomplish redemption, he then applied the merits of Christ to us by his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now lives within the Christian. We are indwelt by God's Spirit. And apart from Him, our love for one another is impossible. This is not something that we can muster up in our own strength. And what's awesome about this, not only is our love for one another impossible apart from the Spirit, but with Him, our love for one another is a certainty. So we don't need to worry Ultimately, we don't need to worry that love for the brothers isn't going to happen in the church. The Holy Spirit will see to it. We thought about this weeks ago, about how the Holy Spirit of God will not let a person go on in deliberate, unrepentant sin. Has nothing to do with you. Decisively, it has everything to do with the Spirit of God in you. So that's good news. The third third big meditation here, though, within point two. This is kind of tethered to the entire point itself is that our love for one another is motivated and driven by God's love for us in Christ. Our love for one another is motivated by and driven by God's love for us in Christ. So consider the Lord Jesus and his love for us for just a minute. There are so many things that we could say. No one loves like he does. One thing that he bids us to do, and this is such sweet news, he bids you and he bids me, come to me if you're weary, come to me and rest. Come to me and find rest for your souls. He says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anybody weary in here today? I imagine many for all kinds of reasons. Some of them circumstantial. Some of them may be very much tethered to the struggle that you've experienced this week against sin. Come to me, Christ says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's remarkable love. Christ's words To us is that, look, beloved, you don't need to work to earn God's favor. You don't need to toil to achieve righteousness. I've done that. You don't need to work to earn God's favor because you are favored of God in me. You don't need to toil to achieve righteousness because I've accomplished it for you and it's yours in me. He says to us, hide yourself in me. I've shielded you from the wrath of God. I've satisfied the wrath of God for you. I've already taken your punishment and your penalty. There's nothing to fear. Hide yourself. He says to us, I am your resurrection. Though you die, yet shall you live. Though you have great enemies, death and Satan and sin and hell, I have defeated every one of them for you. Trust me, rest in me. There is nothing to fear. You will never be condemned because of me. Nothing will separate you from the love of God because of me. 
You've been adopted into my father's family and you will be with me where I am to behold my glory that the father gave to me before the foundation of the world because he loved me. Christ's words are come, you who are weary, trust me, rest in me, hope in me. I've got you, you're good. You're good with God. In Christ, we have been showered with grace. Our sin has been paid for and taken away. Our guilt has been removed. Our shame that's real has been covered. We have been credited with righteousness that we did not accomplish. Because as we've thought about so often, we thought about this yesterday in the new members class. We talked about this last week. If we've ever been told that justification means that it's as though we've never sinned, that's not completely right. That's only part of what Christ did. God requires perfect law-keeping. God requires perfect righteousness. And so Christ accomplished that in our place as a man, and we've been counted with that righteousness that we never accomplished and never could. We have had our real law-breaking. We have had the real actual penalty that we should have to pay paid. That transaction is over. Christ died under the law and in him, it's as though we too died to the law. It's done. When Christ said that it was finished on the cross, this is what he meant. Redemption's over. Like it's done. All that's left is to trust me. Righteousness is accomplished. Atonement is accomplished. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath is accomplished. And then he got up from the dead for our justification and to conquer even the last enemy called death. We've been adopted into the family of God and we're no longer, we're no longer laboring to climb into the Father's arms. We're there. We're there. We rest there. Our status is fixed forever. Child of God. Righteous. All because of Christ. We are dearly loved. And so, when we are told, in light of all that, when we're told, love one another, love each other, the response of the redeemed is not like, okay. The response of the redeemed is, yes, amen. I know I'm going to fail. I know we're going to do this imperfectly, but my goodness, yes. Look at the magnificent love of God for us. Look at the love of Christ for us. Yes, let's love each other. We are now a part of the family of God and none of us deserves to be here. We're all looking to Christ. We're all pointing one another to him and what he's done. Let's lock arms together and walk together and love each other. That's the response. This is a great thing. Point number three. God and his love become visible through our love for one another. Point three. God and his love become visible through our love for one another. Put your eyes on verse 12. John starts with a complete thought here. No one has ever seen God. True statement. Nobody's ever seen God in his fullness. Moses saw the back of God. 
That was so that he wouldn't be annihilated, right? And he had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock and all that stuff. Whenever Moses would even meet with God, his face would shine and he would have to wear a veil over it and all these things. But even Moses never saw God this way. As John is saying, nobody's ever seen him. But then he goes on and he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So no one has ever seen God true. And if we love one another, it's clear that God's spirit lives in us. If we love one another, it's clear that God's love is being perfected in us. And whatever he's saying here, excuse me, in other words, what he's saying is that even though nobody's seen God, if we love one another, God's love becomes visible. God becomes visible in the community of the saints. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's explain what that means for just a moment. How is the love of God perfected in us? What is meant here is that God's love for us, right? God's love for us that he gave us when we were still his enemies is accomplishing its perfect work in us. That's what that means. The love of God is perfected in us. The love of God that he gave us when we didn't deserve it is reaching and achieving its perfect goals in us. God is changing us. God's love for us that we've been considering produces change. It causes transformation. God's perfect purposes are being realized in his people. That word that's translated perfected carries with it the connotation of completion, of reaching a goal. So when we love one another, it becomes very clear and apparent that God's spirit lives here, right? And it becomes very apparent that the love of God is accomplishing its work through and in us when we love each other. So no one has seen God, but God and his love. We really see God and we really see the love of God in the church when we love each other. So as we conclude this and start kind of a nice, easy descent. I want us to consider a few things that should characterize our life together as a body. Just a few things that should characterize our life together as a body. So these are pastoral thoughts from me. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. And I've tried to do some of this as we've made our way through this letter of 1 John when he will exhort us to love each other or even in practicing righteousness, obeying God's commands. I try to sprinkle some of this in, just thoughts for us. My aim, even in this time, in thinking about how we would live together, is to very much model my tone after the apostle's tone. So I want this to be safe, family time, secure, warm. This is us. And that doesn't mean that if you're here today and you're a visitor, that this isn't for you. If you're here today and you're visiting with us, we would love to have you be with us. There's nothing we'd rather talk to you about after the service than the Lord Jesus Christ what it means for you to trust him and what it means for you to be a part of a church that would imperfectly but really display his love. So this is for you too. So the first thing, if we're going to love one another well in a way that demonstrates the love of God for us, our life together would be characterized by compassion. You're not surprised to hear me say that. Compassion, first heading. So think about Galatians 6, chapter 1. We were in the book of Galatians not that long ago as a church. 
Whenever someone is caught in, ensnared in, trapped in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch over yourselves also, lest you too be tempted and fall. Compassion. So people at times are ensnared in sin. This happens in a fallen world. We struggle ourselves. We sin. We find ourselves yet again doing that thing, like the Apostle Paul. I'm doing this again and I don't want to do it. I hate it in my spirit and here I am. Or yet again, I've neglected to do this thing that I want to do in my spirit and I haven't done it. We all have been there. So what we do as a body, as we live together, is that we seek to extend the same compassion to other people that we would want for ourselves. In those moments of intense struggle and hurt over sin or just circumstantial trials that just are beating us up, we seek to extend the same compassion to others that we would want for ourselves. We don't immediately jump to judgment. That can so easily happen because we're all self-righteous. Self-righteousness is an epidemic that's affected every one of us. So we don't immediately jump to judgment when transgressions occur. We give room for people to wrestle. We give room for people to genuinely fight sin. This doesn't mean that we give people room to be apathetic, right? It doesn't mean that we give people room to just side with sin against God. That's not what we're talking about. But people struggle and we give them room to fight and we come alongside them and encourage them in that fight. We continue to point them to Christ in the midst of struggle. So this makes this kind of a compassionate posture makes the church a safe place, a place where authenticity and all of those things that we value, right, is a real possibility. Second thing that would characterize our life together, if we're going to love one another well, is patience. Patience. Love is patient and love is kind. Right? So this means that we don't get frustrated with people when we don't see immediate change. We don't get frustrated with people when we don't see immediate fruit. How easy is that to do? I mean, I can speak as a pastor, right, as one of the elders here, that it can be hard as we continue to walk together. And it's like, oh, my goodness, we're really having the same conversation again. We're having the same thing again. We're watching this movie again. We can all feel that way. But what patience means is that we don't get frustrated when we don't see immediate change and immediate fruit. We really do. Again, I know I say this all the time, too, but we really do play the long game with one another. We realize this. When I say long game, this. All I'm saying is that change happens over a lifetime of trusting Christ. It happens over a lifetime of reliance upon the Holy Spirit. So we ought not be warped out of our frames when somebody doesn't change the first week or the third week or the third month. We ought never to have this posture of, like, you should be better by now. Like, what's wrong with you? You're still struggling with that? How long have you been a Christian? Like, that just doesn't help anybody. And it's also not good when you meet, like, okay, we're, we're meeting for coffee and we're talking about life and we're getting real, we're getting deep, and somebody shares a struggle, shares a sin with you or whatever. And maybe it's substantial. It would not be good for us to look at one another and say, okay, 
well, let me reach into my medicine cabinet, you know, my, my Bible verses and my medicine cabinet and pull out that one and that one and that one. And here's these three verses. Take these tonight and call me in the morning. I'm sure you'll be, I'm sure you'll be doing much better. Like that just doesn't help. Take these three verses and call me next week. I'm sure the next time we get together, this is going to be all okay. Like, that's just not how this life works. We all know that. Patience, long haul, bearing with one another. That's what this is. Instead of that kind of you should be better by now posture, it's a brother or sister. You are in Christ Jesus. You're trusting him. I know you are. You're in Christ. Keep fighting. Keep fighting sin. Keep pressing on. Jesus isn't going anywhere. And neither are we, the church. We're here. Patience. Third thing. Gentleness. Gentleness ought to characterize our lives with one another. So this is simply a posture, especially when we're dealing with one another's sin, where we're not harsh, but we're tender. It's occurred to me, and it probably has to many of you too, that as we grow in the faith, as we are sanctified, as we are maturing in the faith, that maturation should produce more gentleness towards struggling sinners, not less. So, in other words, the holier we become, the more gentle we should be. The holier we become, in terms of sanctification, the more gentle we should be towards struggling sinners. So that means immediately that whenever people start kind of throwing definitions of sanctification around or they start throwing definitions of holiness around, and yet there seems to be in this context where Holiness is the goal. Gentleness and compassion like, are gone. That ought never to be. We've talked about that so many times. Holiness and compassion and patience and gentleness go together. They do not contradict one another at all. So let's be concerned with righteousness. Let's practice righteousness. Let's pursue holiness. And as we do, we will become more patient, more gentle, more compassionate. The only reason I make that last, this is brief aside, the only reason I make that last caveat is because when some people hear you talk about compassion and gentleness and patience, the immediate assumption is it's like, well, brother, you just want to make it easier for people to sin. Like you're just trying to create moral laxity or an antinomian culture in your church. Not true. Not true. Anyway, talk about that some other time. Next thing that should characterize our lives together if we're going to love one another well. Humility. Humility. Humility means that, frankly, we're very self-aware and we get who we are. We're aware of our frame. We're aware of our weaknesses. We realize, think Galatians 6, we realize that we too could fall into the very same sin that my brother has just fallen into, into the very same sin that my sister has just been caught in. That could be me. It absolutely would be me if not for the grace of God. We're humble. In other words, we're self-aware, and in knowing ourselves rightly, we are not self-righteous. That's what humility means. It means more than that, but never less than that. Lastly, 
And again, not an exhaustive list, but fifth thing that we'll consider. We're going to love one another. We seek to bear one another's burdens. We seek to bear one another's burdens genuinely. So because we live in a fallen world, suffering is normal. Like if, if you think that suffering is the exception and not the norm, you're either maybe really young and haven't experienced a lot of life, or you're just in an extraordinary season of winning and it won't last forever. Suffering is normal in a fallen world. And so we need to be prepared and ready to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters because there will be burdens. So this, this affects all kinds of things. I mean, in line with what we've just been thinking about, right? We're compassionate, we're patient, we're gentle, we're humble. We're aware. We know that suffering is normal. So this affects just how we have conversations. It affects the questions that we ask. And we're genuine, we're real, we're honest. Because we know it's safe. And it's done in a way that's sincere. We care, we love, we want to bear burdens. And so when our brothers and sisters are struggling and suffering, we aim to be there. We aim to listen. We're slow to speak. We realize that there are good and bad times to correct bad theology. We offer practical help in times of need. And ultimately, in seeking to bear one another's burdens, what's the greatest thing that we could ever do? I'll speak personally. The greatest thing you could ever do for me, if I'm suffering or struggling in any way, is to point me to Jesus Christ. We point one another to Christ. Like we've said so many times too, to encourage one another to trust Christ is not some cliche. It's not just some trite saying that sounds cute. It's the real thing. He is the only absolute hope we have. He is our righteousness. He is our redeemer. He is the ground of our standing before God. And so we point one another to Christ always if we're going to bear one another's burdens. So beloved, consider the ways that God has loved us. Consider especially Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Remember that we are of God. We are in the Father's arms and we can rest there. And now, knowing all of that, let's love each other. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and thank you and give you praise that, that we are in your arms and that you have given us not a spirit of fear, but you have given us a spirit of adoption through whom and through which we now call you Father. We thank you as well for what Jesus has accomplished in our place. We thank you that you have seen fit by your Holy Spirit to apply the work of Christ to us and to indwell us and work in us and change us. So we pray that you would keep doing that work. We pray that your love for us that we've considered today would continue to be perfected in us and do its good work. So we do pray that your love for us would motivate us and drive us in love toward you, in love toward one another, and in toward obedience. And we pray for ourselves now as we come to the Lord's table that you would remind us even anew through this sacrament that you have given us 
remind us and reassure us of our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Minister to us now, we pray. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.